And for those of you for whom that is one of your favorite hymns, we will sing stanzas three and four later in the service, because my sense was you are just beginning to enjoy it and find your heart and soul move heavenwards when we stop. So please forgive us for that. Scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bible with you, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2 as we explore together this morning those first six verses. You'll find it in page 1899, page 1899 of the church Bible. For those watching at home, and if you have tuned in this morning for the first time, I want to encourage you as you join us Sunday by Sunday to have an open Bible with you, possibly a notepad and a pen, something to write with, as Sunday by Sunday we explore passages of Scripture together asking the question, how does this passage speak into my life and equip and enable me to live out my faith in the week ahead? And so those are some of the questions we will be asking this morning as we look at what is one of the great passages from the epistle of 1 John. So let's begin at verse 1. The Apostle John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. For most of us, these early days of January, from time to time, we begin to plan events coming up this year. And occasionally, some of us daydream a little about not simply events coming up, but things you would like to do and achieve. And over the last couple of weeks, some of us have been thinking about moving house. Perhaps it's time to change out your car. Perhaps you have a child going off to school or college or a grandchild for the first time. And these things, of course, will run through your mind. And I also like to do a little daydreaming. What if... I was able to do this this year? What if I was able to accomplish or achieve this or that? Now, on Fridays, most of you know that I send out a congregational email, and I usually begin with something that I find vaguely funny. Thank you. Someone laughed. 90% of the time, I find it funny and you don't. And so I am still persevering with it. And in fact, someone sent me a note last week that I included in Fridays at First this past Friday, and it read like this. I have a great idea for a new gym. I'm going to call it Resolutions and Pastries. 
I will open a gym and fill it with exercise equipment for the first three weeks in January. And then after that, I'm going to sell sumptuous pastries and croissants. I thought that is exactly the kind of gym that most people would be attracted to. That would definitely work. And then I thought to myself, perhaps we really shouldn't call them New Year resolutions. Perhaps we should call them casual promises I make to myself, which I'm under no obligation whatsoever to fulfill. And if that describes you, it certainly describes me. But having had a little fun with New Year resolutions, let me go a little deeper. Let me begin to probe this morning and ask some serious questions. That over these first eight days of a new year, have you proactively, intentionally, perhaps prayerfully and quietly, said, in this new year, I'm absolutely serious about moving to the next level in my faith and in my walk with Christ. Let me take it a step further and ask the question, in terms of growing in your faith, are you closer to him this January than you were This time last year? Are you further away? Is there an intensity and a joy and a heart's cry that you would know him better and fuller and richer in the year ahead? And if you have asked those questions... I want to take you into this passage in John this morning that teaches us so much about what it means to be enabled and encouraged in our faith. Because most of us, I think, if I stood at the door this morning with a clipboard and did a quick survey and asked, would you like to grow in your faith this year? Most of us would say immediately yes. And in fact, you might even say to me, and we've touched on this before, so this is not a new theme, so if it's too repetitious, forgive me, you might even say, Richard, I would want to become instantly mature, intellectually astute when it comes to my faith, morally flawless, spiritually wise, a model of faithful obedience and uninhibited faith. Richard, that's what I am after. If you really pushed me into a corner and said, where do I want to be in my walk with Christ this year? That's where I'd want to be. And others of you may be saying, absolutely, that's where I'd want to be. But Richard, my question is this, not so much what I want to be, but help me understand the steps that will get me there. Lay it out for me. Make it clear for me. Don't just talk in aspirational terms, but give me the tools in order to get there, spiritually speaking. Someone sent me a note recently, and it read like this. An admirer, and it was to musicians. And the admirer says, how do you manage to perform so well? And the musician comes back and says, practice. I think you would identify. Second comment, it must be an innate gift. Musician responds, it's practice. 
The admirer comes back a third time. I can never understand why some people have your kind of talent. It is incredible. It's magical, almost mysterious. And the musician says, it's practice. Practice, practice, practice. When you're tempted to think, Richard, how do I get to this aspirational point in my faith? The first step is practice. Is live out your faith. Put it into practice. Be obedient to his call. Obedient to his moral and spiritual standards. In the midst of challenging and difficult days, you step out in faith and you practice. That's the point that's being made. Now you may be saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I understand it. But how does anything you've said this morning relate to 1 John chapter 2? Help me this week to grasp the significance of this passage. Help me to want to come back to this passage on Monday morning and Tuesday and Wednesday before I get the day underway and to genuinely understand how the passage speaks into my life. How does that equip me? How does it strengthen me that I would then begin to practice my faith and live it out in the week ahead? And that's a, good, that's a great question. And that's exactly what we'll explore this morning. So as we come to 1 John, there are several questions going on at the same time. And some of you will have heard me say this before, and some of you are going to say, Richard, you've told us that many times. Why are you telling us it again? Because some of you have forgotten Others of you weren't here when I told in the past. And remember, what's the secret of growth? What's that first step? Being fed by the Word of God on Sunday morning, then put it into practice during the week. And so please remember, whenever we come to a passage for the first time, it's a little like going to driver's ed for the first time. First time you're behind a wheel, the instructor is telling you, keep an eye on your rear view mirror when you're on the road. Be conscious of your left and right mirrors. Watch the distance between you and the vehicle in front. Be conscious of who is behind you. Keep one eye on the speedometer. Watch for road conditions. Are you in the right lane as you exit the interstate? And so there's multiple things while you're driving you have to bear in mind in order to proceed safely and well and get there in good time. Likewise, when it comes to a passage of Scripture, here are the three things I consistently remind you of when we're opening up a passage for the first time. And the first is this historical context. The second is theological content. And the third is the literary structure. Now that sounds as if I'm teaching an undergraduate class in New Testament studies. But these three principles are of immense value. So when you think of historical context in this passage, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking, of course, excuse me, about the first of the Johannine epistles. There's three of them. They come at the end of the New Testament, as you know. The author is the Apostle John. 
How do we know it's the Apostle John? Well, John spent his latter years in Ephesus. New Testament scholars suggest that this was written from Ephesus. And more importantly, it contains distinctly Johannine phrases and characteristics, not unlike the Gospel of John. The language, the vocabulary, the contrast in images is very similar to John's Gospel. And several of the early church fathers attributed 1 John to the Apostle John. And so that's why New Testament scholars will tell there is significant evidence to suggest it comes from John. Secondly, he was in his late 80s, early 90s by this stage. And so as an older man, he writing with great tenderness towards a congregation to encourage them to grow in their faith. So that's something of the historical context of what's happening here. But more importantly, this morning, we're going to touch on the theological content as we get into the passage. And thirdly, there's the literary structure. And I almost never talk to you about the literary structure. We always do the first two. But literary structure means this. Why did John use particular words in particular manner? And what is he seeking to communicate that will impact us? And in fact, as John begins to open chapter 2 and he writes verse 2, what he is saying to his first century readers and every reader since is this. Pay attention. What I'm about to tell you is of foundational importance. And we know this. Why? Because of the language he uses. He's drawing your attention to it. He's saying, please grasp the enormity and the wonder of what I'm about to tell you. And of course, I've turned to it because we have a communion Sunday. Because the passage focuses on all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And that's why we're turning to it this morning. And so John, with great appreciation of all that's about to take place, writes as an older adult, late 80s, early 90s, and he writes, my dear children. It's almost as if you are watching a grandparent or a parent teach a young adult how to change a wheel on a vehicle. The tire is flat, they're at the side of the road, they think back now, what was I taught to do? Taught to jack it up, loosen the, the, the nuts, be careful when you're doing it, be cautious of your surroundings. All of that, and John is saying, slow down, Pay attention. You really need to get this. It is of foundational importance. And so that's what's going on here. And he writes, My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, he has one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Earlier in chapter 1, he writes in absolutely magisterial terms, spectacularly well done about who Christ is and why he has come. And then he goes on to teach his first century readers about what it means to walk in the light of God's love. 
And then he says to them, but if sin is encroaching at your door, if sin is drawing you away from growing in your faith, if sin is impacting your life, how do you stop it? How do you move on? And of course, he says, practice, practice, practice. Stop the sin, live out your faith. And he says, and when that sin comes, remember, you have one who's on your side, praying for you, encouraging you, strengthening you. He is Christ the righteous one. So that's what he's been dealing with so far. But it's verse 2. I want to highlight this morning. And it's verse 2 I need you to focus on. If you take notes in your Bible, it might be worth just putting a little tick in the edge, in the margin of your Bible, so you'll come back and read this again and again. Because what's happening here is so profound that John says, please get this. And he writes in verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. And the question is this. John, what on earth do you mean by atoning sacrifice? The rest I get. I think you're saying he died for your sins and also for the sins of the whole world. But that's not what it says. It says, and the Greek is very particular here, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in fact, this is so important, if you're reading the New International Version, you will see there's a footnote at the bottom of the page. And the footnote at the bottom of the page reads like this. Or, he is the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sin, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the world. Now, most of us, I think, would say, being brought up in a Christian environment, would say, of course we know that Christ died for my sins. Of course we know that he died for the world. He dealt with our sins at Calvary. And the technical term for what I've just described is called expiation. But John is not using the word expiation here. He is using the word in English, propitiation, an atoning sacrifice. And what John is telling us this, it's not simply that Jesus dealt with the problem of sin. He then went on to make us right with God. He not only removed the problem of sin, but he also made us right with God. And he was an atoning sacrifice. Now, please understand what I'm saying here. It is essential that you grasp this. From God's perspective of eternal love and grace, in the immensity and intensity of his love, with that love also comes a holy, righteous hatred for the toxicity of sin and the damage it does to every person and every situation that it touches. And when God looks at an individual, not only does he extend to them his eternal love, but he also sees the sin that exists in our lives. 
And the only way he can deal with it in his righteousness, holiness, and justice is to ask his son to become an atoning sacrifice for us. And that's exactly what John is telling us. We saw it in our opening hymn, In Christ Alone. You will read of the language of the wrath has been removed. God's righteous, holy, settled hatred of sin and his holy anger towards it has been appeased by Christ offering himself as the sinless sacrifice. That is what we remember at this table. Now you may be sitting there saying, okay, Richard, I think I'm with you. I think I've got this. But let me ask, how does that impact my life this week? How does that equip and enable me to live out my faith? Well, the first thing it does is this. It moves us deeply to a level of appreciation and thankfulness that God himself, rather than judge us in holy righteousness, judged Christ in our place. And he offered himself as an atoning sacrifice. In essence, he said, Father, blame me. Let me be guilty. Let me suffer your wrath in order that others might feel and be transformed by your love and your grace. That's what's going on here. And so the practical point is the first thing it does is move you to appreciation. It moves you to thanksgiving. It moves you to the praise that if he would do that for me, I will walk in the light of his love. I will be obedient to his call. I will seek to surrender and submit every aspect of my life to him. That's what's going on here. That's how it equips you. That's how it strengthens you. And remember... What did John say in the opening verse? My dear children, when you sin, remember there is a righteous one who is interceding on your behalf, who is enabling you and equipping you and praying for you. He's right there with you. So that's how it begins to move you to living out your faith. And then secondly, we take that next step from appreciation and thanksgiving and adoration and worship, we then move to what? Practice, practice, practice. This past Monday night, and I'm not sure if you saw it or not, a football game was played in Cincinnati, and it was played between Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills. Very sadly, Damar Hamlin, one of the players, was involved in a tackle and he collapsed after the tackle and he died right there. At that moment, millions of fans watching on television, tens of thousands there in the stadium were utterly shocked and there was a silence settled over the place. And players, when they began to realize that life had left 
left their colleague were deeply concerned. And some of the most powerful athletes in the nation wept with a sense of hopelessness because there was nothing they could do. Tens of millions of dollars worth of athletes could do nothing amidst the hopelessness of this situation. And as the paramedics worked in incredible ways, resuscitated the player. He was eventually taken off to hospital. While all of that was going on, the players huddled up in a circle and they prayed. And the fans watching applauded the fact that the players were praying. And when they stood after they finished praying, they were applauded again. And the next morning, an ESPN commentator on Tuesday morning said this live on television with millions watching. He said, maybe this is not the right thing to do, but it's on my heart and I want to pray for Damar Hamlin right now. I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head. And I'm just going to pray for him. His two colleagues sitting at the sports desk put down their papers and their pens. Their phones were left to one side. They closed their eyes and they prayed. And this is what he said. God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand. Moments that are hard because we believe that you're God and coming to you and praying to you has impact. We're sad. We're angry. And we want answers. But some things are unanswerable. And we just want to pray. Truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar. Be with his family to give them peace. I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up Damar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. Practice, practice practice. In the midst of the most challenging situation, the commentator was in a distinct possibility of losing his job for praying live on air. And yet he did. Yet he did. Because here was the Christ, the Holy One, who had equipped him and enabled him in that moment to give voice to what millions were feeling in a situation of hopelessness. This morning, as we gather around this table, we are not hopeless because we know the one who has provided the atoning sacrifice for our sin and not only taken away our sin, but then made us righteous with God, pleasing to Him. And so this morning as we gather around this table, watch bread broken and are reminded that blood was shed for us, we give thanks at the beginning of a new year, asking him to energize us and equip us and enable us. And some of us will have incredible challenges this year to live out our faith. And it takes practice, practice, 
practice. And I would have to say from my own experience, and I suspect it's yours as well, that when you step out in faith, are obedient to him, walk in the light of his love, and walk as Christ would have his love, then the blessing comes, then the equipping comes, then the strengthening comes, almost never back here while we're making New Year resolutions, but when we actually step out in faith and practice, practice, practice. May that be our experience in this new year. Let's pray together. Father, thank you from this passage from 1 John. And help us please in this coming week to return to it each day, to read again the significance of all that John is teaching us. And enable us, please, some of us amidst very difficult challenges, practice living in obedience with you. Practice submitting and surrendering all aspects of our life to you and practice trusting you for all that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.